Um, I am Pastor Andrew, and I am here to preach. I was a bit later coming in this morning, and, and Joe Thiessen was very worried that I wouldn't show up. He didn't know what we could do, and then I reminded him, well, you probably would all be able to get out of here on time if I didn't show up, because then we'd have the meeting, and you could still make it home in time for lunch. But no, I, I did show. And we've got a, a pretty good and significant sermon in, in the fact that it's the last sermon in our series in the book of Acts. And we've been here a while. There was 15 different stories that I wanted to highlight out of this book. And in fact, I, I, we even broke it up a little bit. We, we, we followed uh, the day of Pentecost and the founding of the church and then a lot of Peter's story. And then we spent some time in First Peter in the summer and then broke it up here in the fall following Paul. I like to call it Act 1 and Act 2, which I know is very clever. 15 weeks. And, and sometimes you feel the pressure of, of of the finale, because finales can be hard to do well. They often disappoint. And if you're someone who's maybe been following a specific TV show for a long time, those finales can really kind of be a dud. Like, like if you're ever one of those people who gave up some years of your life to the show Lost, it's probably the worst finale of a multi-season show of all time. But if you disagree, you can come talk to me about that after. But in a way, the book of Acts itself finishes on a bit of an anticlimactic note. You have Paul sitting at home. That's how the curtain kind of falls on the book of Acts. But not before, an adventure on the high seas. And that's what we are going to learn from today. When we last left Paul, he was under house arrest in Caesarea, uh, trying to convert the Roman governor Festus and King Agrippa in really what was an audacious display of faith when he was brought before them on trial. And they couldn't find anything wrong with Paul. He wasn't guilty of anything. Uh, he had committed no crime. He was there because he was falsely accused by the Jews. Uh, and he was, would have been able to go free except for the fact that he had appealed to Caesar. And because he was a Roman citizen and he had made this appeal, then it was his right to go and stand before Caesar. And so now that has, has become, in the Roman world, that has become his end game. He is going to Rome. But more than that, we know that Paul is doing all of this, being compelled by the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem even when it was dangerous for him, to be compelled by the Spirit to go before Caesar, and now the Spirit will continue to lead Paul down this path. And so the governor, Festus, uh, put Paul on a ship and helped him embark on this trip to Italy, a trip that would ultimately end in disaster and being marooned on an island kind of like we're watching the movie Castaway. <laughs> Paul's, uh, Paul's beard really played well here in this, uh, this instance. And part of moving on from the book of Acts is we'll also move on from my Photoshop abilities. Okay, we can move on from that too. Paul's journey begins in a normal, uneventful fashion. I mean, if you were to be traveling in the Mediterranean world, that is. And he sets sail from Caesarea along with a group of other prisoners under the watchful eye of a Roman centurion. It's at this point that he's once again joined by Luke himself, Luke being the author of the book of Acts. And we see here in chapters 27 and 28 uh, the renewal of this we language where we saw once before during Paul's journey. That, that gives us this strong indicator that Luke has now personally joined Paul on this portion of his journey and my guess is he was going to regret that very soon. But Luke is now along with Paul and a group of other prisoners. They climb aboard the ship Adramitium and sail along the coast of Asia. 
So you see from Caesarea, which is in the bottom right-hand corner of that map, they will travel up the coast to Sidon, uh, where, where Paul is given some liberty to go and meet with some friends and to be encouraged. And from there, they go around the island of Cyprus to Myra. And the reason they have to go around the island is because the winds were not in their favor. This was one of the shoulder seasons uh, that was getting close to winter and, and sailing was becoming more and more difficult. The winds were not very favorable. But even there, a little bit of a detour around Cyprus, but so far, so good. In that port city of Myra, then, the centurion in charge finds a different ship which will be bound to Italy. It should be the final ship, if all goes according to plan, that Paul will need to get to Rome. And so at Myra, they embark on a journey once more. But unfortunately, this leg of their trip proves much more difficult. They arrive with some difficulty at a city called Nidus, which is just above Rhodes uh, on the southern coast of Asia there. And the winds are becoming more and more difficult to sail with, and they're losing time. They're now forced to go all the way around Crete to a port called Fair Havens. Fair Havens, which to me sounds like something out of a Tolkien novel. Ah, they found Fair Havens. And you think with a place called Fair Havens, that would be a wonderful place to stay a while, right? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Well, no, they didn't want to stay in Fair Havens. There was a problem now. The winds had not been favorable. Their journey was taking longer than expected, and winter was right around the corner. They were unsure that they would have enough time to safely sail to Rome. But they were in Fair Havens, but the, the, those who knew about the ship and those who were uh, in charge of navigating didn't want to winter there because it was an exposed port and they didn't think that they would necessarily be safe. They wanted to sail just a bit farther down the coast of Crete to the port of Phoenix. And so, yes, uh, there was a lot of people on that wanted to winter in Phoenix, which is still true today. It's not Phoenix in, in Crete. But that would be a, a port that would be better and more secure to winter in. And so that is what they want to do. At this point, Paul speaks up for the first time and he warns the captain and the centurion about the dangers of leaving Fair Havens. And, and while he doesn't quote the Lord, I believe this is a divinely inspired warning given to the Spirit to Paul to encourage others to stay in Fair Havens. And this is what we read in Acts 27, verse 10. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul is, with God's guidance, warning those making the decision, we should not disembark from fair havens. We should go no farther. It will be treacherous. But the centurion instead listened to the pilot and the captain of the ship instead of Paul, and they set sail for Phoenix. And we shouldn't really blame the centurion, because you had some professionals sailing their ship and you had some prisoner saying, God told me not to go. And so he sides with the professionals. They leave Fair Havens. They're just going a short journey. What could go wrong? Well, everything goes wrong. Soon after they leave the port, a vicious wind called a northeaster drove them off their path. They, they soon get pushed far away from the island of Crete. They can no longer see land and they are no longer able to navigate for themselves. This wind is so strong that it's literally pushing them along, whether they want to go that direction or not. The storm does not let up and the crew start jettisoning cargo and supplies to make the ship lighter and more able to withstand the wind and the waves. But even this does not help. And after a number of days, the storm still continues. Now they are completely and utterly lost. 
and the ship and the crew lose hope. They have no more hope being saved. They believe this is it. They believe they will be stranded in the middle of the ocean. And whether they sink or whether they starve, they are losing hope. It is during this time of hopelessness that Paul speaks up again in verse 20 of Acts 27. Since then, they had been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Again, Luke captures the person of Paul, and he gets up there in the middle of the storm and says, I told you so. (laughs) I warned you, but did you listen? No. (laughs) I love that. He's not above saying, I told you so. He, He just establishes that they were wrong and he was right. He says, but he continues. That's not the only thing that he says. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have been told, oh, sorry, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And so there is this sense of hopelessness because of their situation. And in the middle of that hopelessness, Paul reminds them and urges them, take heart, for I have faith that God will do what he has set out to do. He ultimately brings a message of hope into this hopeless situation. But why is there hope? Is there hope because the storm is about to break? No. Is there hope because they're under control of the ship or that the captain is an amazing mariner? No. Have they sighted land or another ship to save them? No. There is hope because it is God that would accomplish his purpose for his life. In this case, it was to stand before Caesar. That is what Paul is confident about. Not their situation, but his faith that God will accomplish his purpose in his life just as he has said so. And the sailors now are also part of this plan and this purpose. And they too are encouraged to trust in God's plan for them. I love what this means for us today. It means that God's purposes are not defeated through our own mistakes. God's purposes are not defeated through our own mistakes. Because, let's be honest, it was truly a human mistake to sail out of that harbor of fair havens and to enter the seas again during this winter season. It was a mistake. They ought not to have done it. Not only that, but they were warned against it. They had this opportunity to listen to the word of God through Paul and to avoid all of this hardship. In the same way, while we are not navigating the Mediterranean Sea, in ancient times. We are also all guilty at some point in our lives of disregarding God's warning, of of willfully acting in disobedience, of believing at some level that our way is the best way and forging ahead with what we want to do. We all make mistakes. And both of us, those ancient navigators and sailors and us today, are all having to pay the consequences of these mistakes. The consequence for those that were on the ship was that they were now in mortal danger. They paid the price for leaving a safe port. And we are also not guaranteed to be free of the consequences of our mistakes. That's not the promise. That's not what is giving Paul confidence. 
And as Pastor Danny from Adult and Teen Challenge mentioned here last week, there are consequences for actions, past, present, and future. We are not free of those. We'd all have those moments, big and small, in which we (laughs) really wish we could go back in time. Perhaps it will be in the hustle and bustle of holiday shopping, which I'm told is right around the corner. And you're at the mall, and you're in a rush, and you're backing out of your parking spot, and right before you turn that vehicle right back into drive, you hear a boom, crunch. And oh my goodness, wouldn't it be so nice to have a 10-second rewind in life? Just 10 seconds is all I need. Control Z. Something to help undo that action. We get that sinking feeling because we know we made a mistake and we will have to pay in some form a consequence for that mistake. But then there are also bigger mistakes and bigger consequences that come with them. And we see this through Scripture where even men after God's own heart weren't free from these consequences of their actions. It could be the example of Moses striking the rock in in defiance of God's orders and now he was no longer able to enter the promised land. Or King Saul who, who was the very first king of Israel who again thought he knew better than the Lord during a time of war and now his lineage and line of kingship would be taken from him. Or perhaps we're reminded of King David who took that kingship from Saul's line and his lust after Bathsheba and how that mistake cost him the life of his firstborn son. Or or even in the New Testament where we read stories about someone like Judas who was a devout follower of Jesus instead tempted by money and greed to betray his master and was racked with guilt to the point where he would take his own life. Or even in the book of Acts where we read the incredible and very intimidating story of Ananias and Sapphira who tried to deceive the church and the Holy Spirit with how much they were giving and they were struck dead as a result. In big things and in small things and everywhere in between, we are reminded that our actions have consequences. It's something that we continue to learn, something that I'm trying to pass down to my children. And yet, and yet we also are reminded that the promise that Paul receives is that God's purpose in our life is not somehow trumped by our sins and our shortcomings. For the sailors, they would be saved and their lives would be saved because they had a role to play in God's purpose. For us, God is doing a work in our lives that is for his kingdom, for his honor, for his glory. And it would be prideful of us to think that somehow we can so easily derail all of those priorities that God has in our life just because we make mistakes and are sinful and have shortcomings. Even better, we see that God has this heart and this ability to truly overcome all the consequences of our sin. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he took the ultimate consequence of our sin. Because we sinned, we were destined for eternity without God, without a relationship, without being in his presence. And through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus, who bore the consequences and penalty of our sin, we are now destined for eternity with God. Our whole destiny has been changed because God has done what he needs to do to overcome our sin and our shortcomings. That is the good news of Jesus. And he is still at work in other ways of making sure that his purposes are still coming to fruition. We ought to trust that God is big enough to overcome our mistakes and our disobedience to continue his work in us. It doesn't all hinge on us. It hinges on him. I'm always encouraged by Philippians 1 verse 6, which Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Meaning at this moment of faith in which you trust in Jesus and, and, and you become a new creation, God, through his abiding spirit, is at work in you, sanctifying you, making you holy, forming you more and more into the image of the Son and less and less like the broken people that we are. And, and no matter what happens between that moment and the return of Jesus, that work that God is doing will be carried to completion. It will not be derailed. It will not be foiled. It will not be overcome. So should we obey the Lord? Yes. And should we, through the wisdom God has given us, limit our mistakes and the consequences and the damages that they bring? Of course. But when we don't, take heart in the fact that God is still able to overcome all of our failures to bring about his purpose in our lives. A resounding amen to that. And so here you have a group of sailors and prisoners, and they are, are scared for their life and losing all hope. And I'm sure that Paul's speech gave them some confidence, but they weren't safe from the storm yet. In fact, this continues to go on for 14 days, two entire weeks of being tossed to and fro in the wind and in the rain and overcoming those waves. And on that 14th night, they finally believed they were getting close to land. When they thought they were getting close to shore, there were some sailors that tried to sneak off the lifeboat, but Paul set them differently. He said in verse 31, if anyone gets off this boat, we're doomed. <laughs> I, I think I would paraphrase it. I believe he would have said we're all in the same boat. That's what I think he would have said. Or at least we better be in the same boat. So no, the centurion at this point is learning to trust Paul. So we make sure that those sailors stay. They're going to do this the way that Paul and Paul's God says to do it. Now, the, the sailors were also getting very hungry, having rationed much of their food. And this is, again, where we see Paul take this leadership. In fact, remember that he is a prisoner on this ship. But now everybody seems to be looking to him. And this is what he does to encourage them in verse 33. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. And this helps. They were encouraged by Paul's reminder of the promise God had given to them. They were encouraged by food. I'm sure that would have gone a long way in helping them feel much more like themselves, like they could face what was about to come. And after eating, then they throw a lot of the remaining food overboard because Paul has said, we need to run this ship aground. So it needs to be as light as possible in order to be able to run aground on the beach. On that day, land is finally sighted, but no one recognizes what land or island it is. What they do recognize is that it has a beach where they could run this ship aground, which is exactly what they do right in accordance with Paul's instructions. Now, once they beach this ship and they disembark, there's a very tense moment in which the soldiers who were in charge of the prisoners wanted to kill all of the prisoners so that they wouldn't run away, that they wouldn't escape. This seems like a golden opportunity for them to escape on the island. But, but Paul has become indispensable to the centurion. And so in order to protect him and by extension the other soldiers, the centurion steps in, or sorry, the other prisoners, the centurion steps in, doesn't allow the soldiers to do them any harm. And so the prophecy or prediction that Paul gave from the Lord is true. Every single person on that ship makes it safely to shore on a strange and right 
at this point, unknown island. But the trouble was far from over. They soon recognize that the island that they're on is Malta, just south of Italy. And they're greeted not by Roman citizens and Roman culture, but by natives of the island of Malta. The Greek word for the, the native people is barbarios, which again easily translates into barbarian. But this isn't to say that they were just here with spear and javelin and, and lived in huts. This really is just a term for anyone who is, does not know Greek. So they couldn't speak Greek. They weren't part of the greater Roman Empire in that way. So they may have seemed like barbarians, but they could have still been in, in that time fairly civilized people. Regardless, they were true outsiders. And, and so there was a clash of worlds here as, as a Roman ship full of, of soldiers and prisoners washes up on shore of an island that has very minimal Roman presence. And these native people then still surprisingly don't treat them as, as others or as a threat. They're, they're quite warm and welcoming and they show them hospitality. And because it's still windy and raining and cold, they build a huge fire and, and invite those who are part of the shipwreck to, to gather around the fire. And Paul is doing his part to help out, and he's gathering some sticks to, to throw onto the firewood. And when he reaches down and grabs his bundle of sticks, he realizes far too late that one of these things is not a stick. It is actually a viper, a deadly poisonous snake. And then he looks down, and it's hanging from his hand, having bitten him. Now, I want us to put ourselves in Paul's shoes for a second, Okay? Because he is someone we look up to. He has a strong faith. We would call him a superhero of the faith. But again, we've been reminded he is a human being. And he has endured quite a few things. Just in the last two years, he went to Jerusalem, was falsely accused by his brothers and sisters there, almost beaten to death, arrested, tried, again, not found guilty, but still detained for two years just to keep things quiet. And then finally, when he gets some semblance of, of freedom, he's still a prisoner and he gets to go on this trip. Then he's had to endure two weeks of a storm. And then they're finally shipwrecked. And then the soldiers try to kill him. And then the centurion steps in and he finally is going to make it to Rome. And then he looks down and he has a poisonous snake hanging from his hand. Paul has gone through a lot. He has gone through so much. And so I think shipwreck is perhaps a very appropriate term for his life. But I know that there are many of you here today and life is overwhelming and shipwreck might be an appropriate way for how you feel your life is going at this time. Whereas there were mistakes that were made for the sailors and consequences of their actions, Paul has not made a mistake so far. Not in this instance. None of the hardship that he's endured through all of those past two years, none of it was deserved. None of it was a storm or a wreck of his own making. And yet here still, the circumstances and the hardship of life have, have just gone over and over and over again, are just sitting heavy on his shoulders. He has gone through so much. And I wonder if even Paul may have felt like those he was traveling with may have felt hopeless. And there are many things in my life and in your life today Many ways, many things that are out of our control that just heap on us, it also can lead to this feeling of hopelessness. Perhaps you are struggling with mental health 
And if you were to describe to yourself or to anyone who asked what it feels like, all you would say is, it feels like I'm drowning. I don't know when it will turn. I don't know if there's light at the end of the tunnel. Or maybe you are feeling the pinch of financial stresses because of all of the, the cost of living and the inflationary pressures that continue to just uh, come, come uh, across and, just, and can give you this burden and everything that worked two years ago doesn't work anymore. Not only are there no more margins, you just don't know how you're going to en- make ends meet. You don't know how that's going to work to live life the way that you've been living it. Perhaps each and every morning that you wake up, there is a pain. And you're carrying this physical pain with you throughout the day, each and every day. And it's chronic. And not only does it feel unbearable at times, but you can never escape it. And then the mental pressure of dealing with this pain almost becomes too much to deal with. You could be at work, working hard to make ends meet, but there's more and more demands on your time and your energy. Your bosses call you indispensable, but all you see are the responsibilities growing longer and longer and longer on that list, and the hours are getting more. And then when you go home, you dream about work, and all of a sudden you realize physically and emotionally you're nearing burnout, and you can't afford to step away from your job. So what in the world can you do? Perhaps you are parenting, but you're parenting as a single parent. And parenting is never easy. And, it, and, and, you, and you're going through all of these things that are designed to have a partner to lean on and rely on, but they're not there. And everything seems harder and everything is out of control. And you feel like you may be failing your kids each and every day. Maybe for you it's been a sickness in the family, whether personally or someone else that you know and care about has received a diagnosis that shakes you to the core and you don't know what's going to come next. You don't know what this is going to mean for that person or that family. You're not a medical professional. There's nothing you can do. Or maybe you are in a marriage and, and this relationship that's designed to be this close partnership is the, is the, the relationship that is tearing you apart. And it is broken, maybe beyond repair, or perhaps it's already broken, and you're going through a divorce or being reminded of the consequences of that divorce. And and, and again, this relationship has turned around and has become the other side of a sword. When these things crash over you, you can feel hopeless. In church, there have been a number of stories come across my, my plate these last two weeks to people around me, not directly in my camp, but those around me have people in their life that have struggled with thoughts of suicide or in, the, in a few instances have actually been, had people take their own life because of this overwhelming feel of hopelessness. And church, it breaks my heart to know that people are suffering to such an extent that everything feels dark. It breaks my heart. And I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't, with everything that's in me, point to the truth of Scripture that says there is hope. Paul understands, and he reminds us what we are promised, that in Jesus Christ, we always have hope. But here's the thing, and if you are struggling today with hopelessness, I want you to hear this above anything else I may say. Tune everything else out. You have my permission. Here's the thing. Hope is not an emotion. Hope is a deep-seated trust that God will complete his good work in your life no matter the way you feel. So if you wait to feel hopeful, you may be waiting a long time. Biblical hope is not an emotion. It is, it is this trust, this belief of falling at the feet of the cross and saying, God, I believe that you will complete that good work in me. 
no matter how I feel, no matter if there is a light at the end of this tunnel, because hope is founded in who God is, not in who you are. It's in what he has promised to do, not in how you feel. So no matter what the circumstances of your life are right now, no matter how overwhelmed you may feel, no matter if you will raise your hand and say, shipwreck, that, that describes me perfectly. There is hope for you in who God is. We sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's a wonderful song, and it comes from a wonderful message of hope we find in Lamentations chapter 3. This was written by the prophet Jeremiah, and he is overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and it's in, it's in rubble. It's just debris. It's been raised to the ground. And the people of God have been taken into exile. And by all human measures, this is a hopeless situation. I mean, God had promised to care for his people always. And he promised to build his eternal kingdom in Zion. But his people are gone and Zion is a mess. How can this be true? But the prophet Jeremiah knows what biblical hope looks like. And he stands out and he looks at this city and he says these words. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so my prayer is that no matter what life is doing to you right now, that you would be able to echo the truth of lamentations and trust in who God is and trust that he is worth hoping in. And yes, eventually I do believe that feelings of hope can and will be restored. Paul places his hope and trust in God through the storm, through the shipwreck, and even through the snake bite, which becomes one of the most incredible miracles in the New Testament that we see. Paul is bitten by a venomous snake, and all the natives of the island of Malta know this. And they look at him, and they say, hey, he is going to swell up, and he is going to drop over dead. And nothing happens. It's the greatest, it's the greatest miracle of normalcy. Just nothing happens. He just continues to, to talk and, 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 and to warm up and to work by the fire like everybody else. And I pray that God would give you the gift of normalcy one day too in the shipwreck and the snake bites that life has given you. Well, as we conclude our story in the whole book of Acts, Paul and his companions are, are eventually hosted by the chief man of the island, which is likely the Roman governor. There was a Roman presence on Malta. Uh, this governor, his father is sick, so Paul goes and prays and heals him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he spends the next three months wintering on Malta, healing many others through the power of the Holy Spirit. And after three months, then it's finally safe to travel again, and Paul completes his journey. He goes up from the island of Malta, which you'll see there just south of Sicily, up to the port of Syracuse, and then to Regium, and then to Petolioi, and then to Rome. In Rome, Paul is placed under house arrest. He is able to meet with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He also chooses to meet with the local Jewish leaders at that, in Rome as well. He is able to convince some of them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, many others leave in a huff. Paul concludes by saying in, in Acts 28:29 that salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, they will listen. But let us read, as the music team comes up, let us read the last few verses of Acts together and conclude in this way. He, being Paul, lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's kind of an anticlimax. What happened to Paul in Rome? Well, 
we can trust that he eventually met Caesar as God had promised. And knowing anything about Paul, probably tried to convince and convert the most powerful man in the world to believe in Jesus Christ. He likely did much writing during this time of house arrest in Rome, of which we have many letters from that heritage. It is also likely that during a surge in Christian persecution, probably only four years after he arrived in AD 60, four years after that, Nero would have been in power and he would have blamed the great fire in Rome on Christians and would have put many of them to death. It would be likely that during this time, Paul, being as high profile as he was, would have been martyred for the faith. We don't know for sure, but that is something that we can believe. But Paul had ran his race. He had finished well. He had lived out moments of hope and hopelessness, trusting that God is steadfast in his love, merciful every morning, and worthy to be trusted in his faithfulness. Let's sing and respond to this truth together.